Welcome to Sparks of History. We are very pleased and honored to have with us today Rabbi Dr. Daniel Friedman, founder of the Center for Torah Values. Rabbi Friedman is the author of the popular book series, The Transformative Daf, and has served Jewish communities in the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada. Rabbi Friedman was appointed by the government of Canada to chair the National Holocaust Monument Council and is a specialist on the intersection of American Christianity and the U.S.-Israel relationships. Uh, Rabbi Friedman, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Ari, it's an honor to be on your program. Uh, it's your service that you do for Klal Yisrael, for Medinat Yisrael, is unparalleled, and uh, the distinguished guests that you have on the program are a real tribute to the fine work that you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, there has obviously been much uh, publicity and discussion regarding the heads of American universities and colleges uh, recently. Why do leaders of elite institutions lack moral clarity? How did we get to the state of affairs? And how did that lead to an acceptance of anti-Semitism on college campuses? Yeah, well, I have to begin by saying we have a an interesting situation in the elite universities in America. And I won't say it's all the elite universities where the uh, leaders of the institutions lack moral clarity. Um, I will tell you of a wonderful elite institution called Turo University, whose leader, Dr. Alan Kadish, has incredible moral clarity. Um, I happen to be a professor at Turo, so um, I maybe I'm a little biased. But uh, so I wouldn't say, though, that it is everyone. Unfortunately, what we have seen when we had the visit to Congress is that some of the major institutions that we would have expected better uh, are not performing the way that we expected. Um, how did it happen? Where did it come from? So it's not something that happened randomly. It's something that evolved over a number of decades in the academy uh, as the academy took certain Weltanschauung of what is knowledge, what is the role of um, higher learning. And it evolved from a place where originally Western academic thought uh, believed that you know we were enlightened we uh, had the right way we had gone through the evolution of history and our level of knowledge was really superior to civilizations throughout the world and then in i would say over the last couple of decades of the 20th century and suddenly into the 21st century there was a rethinking that maybe we don't have all the answers and maybe the way that we are looking at the world is through the lens of uh, Western ideas and maybe we should start looking at it from when we're studying and um, conversing with other cultures, we should be thinking and seeing things through their lens as well. And this came with the advent of decolonization in the late 20th century to what has sometimes been termed a decolonization of knowledge. 
Uh, and that decolonization of knowledge, personally, I think is a bit of a misnomer and a misunderstanding. It kind of assumes that this Western, maybe Judeo-Christian approach was blind to the cultures around it. And I don't think that that was ever true. I mean, if you look at the canon of Western thought, uh, I think that there's been a movement that has picked up the best of everyone as we've gone along the way, from, from biblical teachings to Greco-Roman teachings to I mean, look in the Middle, Age, Middle Ages when the height of Islamic philosophy, when we have Averroese. So it's it's not like the Western tradition has ever said, you know, it's it's us and nobody else counts. Nobody else matters. So I think that what we had in the academy was an amalgamation, a consolidation of, of the best of all until we, until we started wondering whether, whether maybe that wasn't the case. And maybe we were self-conscious because we realized that from a power perspective, our nation states had gone in in this you know, great battle for Asia and Africa and colonized all of these countries. And so we in the academy in the ivory tower thought that maybe we're also guilty of that and started to take that step back and say the same way that we've pulled back and are no longer taking advantage of those weaker than us uh, in terms of um, power and land and territory, then from a knowledge perspective as well, maybe we should reconsider who we are and the assumptions that we've made. One part of it, that's one element. The next element is a question of the role of the academy in producing, eliciting, generating, uh, and encouraging the pursuit of knowledge and ideas. And so I think that what we saw in Congress, these leaders of these institutions uh, sitting there answering the questions and answering the questions very strangely unclearly and ambiguously, and we, we all thought to ourselves, how, how's that even possible? What, why don't they know the answers to, the, to these basic questions? So for most people, these answers are black and white. For the leaders of these elite institutions that pride themselves on being the guardians of a space where one can discuss ideas and share different points of view and, and lenses of knowledge and information, if that's their role, then their role, then, then to be able to say that one view versus another view is superior or inferior from certain perspective, that almost feels like that they are deficient in fulfilling uh, the mission that they've been assigned. Uh, but again, that, that point of view to be able to say that that's what the academy is about is relatively new. I mean, you look at the elite, these, some of these elite institutions uh, in America, they, they were originally very Christian institutions uh, built on Christian values as Christian seminaries, but not just for the purposes of training clergy people. It was for the purposes of taking knowledge and bringing knowledge to um to foster a society that's built on a certain moral foundation, and that's what the academies were about. And now to be able to be excuse me, at a point where it's no longer this is our mission and this is our clarity 
And this is the message that we want to be able to instill in society. Now it's a, we've reached a stage where since we don't know for certain that we have the right message, the, the only moral message, then we've become a forum for debating what the right moral message is and a plurality of moral messages. And to be able to silence any of those seems to certain leaders of these elite institutions uh, to be a, a deficiency in their mission of producing this message after it's all been sorted. But if, if we take an extreme example, uh, so if one studies, uh, let's say, a, a culture in Africa and they're cannibals, or if one studies a culture in among maybe some Eskimos that take 70-year-old grandparents and leave them out in the tundra to, to, to die, no one would, would, would adapt and, and say, well, that's a different culture, so we have to understand why somebody is a cannibal, why somebody lets, you know, a grandparent just die. I mean, it, does it go to that extreme? And, and, and on the other hand, um, we're not, all, not just seeing a plurality of opinions. We're seeing some, in certain areas, very, very strong opinions, um, you know, that, that are not debatable. So it's, that's two, two questions that maybe there's different parts of the same question. I'm not sure. So, so in response to your first question, thank God we are still at a stage where there are limits. Does everybody abide those, by those limits? Absolutely not. There are those in the ivory tower with tenure who will capitalize on the fact that they can say whatever they feel like and perhaps say that it is evidence-based because it is rooted in certain cultures. Um, I don't know if anybody's arguing for cannibalism, but if you had to look at, um, well, I mean, I think probably something that's kind of already become mainstream in certain uh, Western societies is to use the politically correct term, sister dying, right? which in most um, societies in Western thought was considered you know, assisted suicide until until recently. And I think that it's something that's becoming more and more acceptable, but is essentially murder. Uh, and so 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 that is one. I would say that when you start to get more borderline, um, you start to think about things like uh, um, female genital mutilation, that from the most in the Western world would say this is this is absolutely barbaric. And then you have those who are saying, well, you know, I, I want to be able to argue from a cultural perspective. Thank God we are still at a stage where United Nations international law says that it is barbaric and that it's forbidden. And so and that it is a line that we don't cross. Uh, so when, when you say that there are voices that um, seem to be strong in, in certain forums that would seem to be beyond the pale, Part of the problem is that when we establish institutions and push the ideal of free speech, oftentimes, and I think this is what's happened in these, in, in these elite institutions, perhaps 
um, with, you know, almost under the radar without the leadership even recognizing that this has been happening, is that with the cementing and encouraging of free speech, one can all, often reach a point where there are those who are arguing their points so loud and so vociferously and um, strongly that they silence the others. So in the name of free speech, we have people who are pushing an agenda while others just can't get word, word and edgeways. And, and so whether that's on the grounds of campus where people are campaigning in a certain way or putting up, you know, um, barriers and walls and saying that this represents the situation in Israel-Palestine, or even in the classroom, where we have had a, cons a concerted campaign from the Saudis and later the Qataris and others um, since 9-11. 9-11 was really the impetus when Saudi Arabia was this uh, pariah. And so the Saudis came in with a lot of money into the academies. And, you know, if any of your viewers think that I'm just talking conspiracy theories, Google New York Times and you can, from, you know, not yesterday, you know, we're talking already a decade or two ago, that will tell you these stories, these stories of bona fide stories that established certain uh, endowments in the universities to attract not only professors, but then students on scholarship with a certain mindset and a certain worldview that brought a way of thinking into the classroom. So while there were more Western liberal, progressive-minded professors who were saying everything is, is all on an even par, we then they were then competing or not even competing because from their perspective they're not going to speak up with those who came in very strongly saying this is the position this is where um, certain thoughts have been ignored and need to be reinstated uh, in the in the academy and I, I know from personal experience I have been in classes as I went through my political science. Uh, degree. I'm a professor of political science, a PhD in political science, but I know that there were certain classes that, you know, one had to kind of stay below the radar because one states certain opinions and knows that those are going against the, against the current, you're swimming against the current. If you want to be able to get through this class, then you have to just, I wouldn't say put the party line, you don't want to say anything that you believe to be uh, incorrect, but not make any waves because this new agenda is being pushed. Uh, and at the same time that it's being pushed in the classroom, it's also being pushed in student unions as these students of a certain mind worldview are being brought in and told, uh, you know, be active in, in, in student life. And we have this shift that's happened where we now have leadership, both at a faculty level and at a student level, and in some cases, even in administration, that says that Israel is bad, um, Western civilization is bad, America is bad, and these are the flaws, and we need to be able to campaign against those flaws. And we have a real movement today in the academy uh, against some of the things that we hold so dear and we assume to be not only just acceptable, but 
but something a point that we'd reached in in Western thought and civilization. So, so is is the alarming apparent alarming rise of anti-Semitism, perhaps on the college campuses? Forget about the society at large. Uh, is 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 that a function of this colonialism narrative? Um, or or perhaps if you would take a poll among students at some of these universities, you'd be surprised and, and find out that it, it it's it's not so anti-Israel. It's it's not anti-Semitic. It's just that the those voices, as as you said, um are, are, are loud. It's like I guess the child that's that's screaming and kicking in, you know, in the store is gonna get it's going to get their candy in the end of the day because that's the only way to, you know, to, to, to shut them up. So if you took a poll today at Columbia, Harvard, what would, what would we see? Or, or perhaps they've done this already. I don't know. So I, I think that there um, are different views on this. Uh, I, I, I'm still, I'm, I'm optimistic. I still think that, that there's hope and that uh, there is a silent majority who are, who who understand um, the importance of of America as as an idea and the importance of of Israel and that Israel has a right to defend itself and and that Israel is not going anywhere and, and I think that that I would like to think is is true in in suddenly in America and Canada and Britain and Australia. Um, and probably a, a good part of Europe as well today. Um, I, had you asked me uh, a, a couple of decades ago in Europe, I, I might not have been so sure. I think that you know, despite all of the terrible news that we hear and that we think that we're going in a poor direction, I'm not absolutely sure that that's the case. Uh, the outpouring of support for Israel um, on October 7th and beyond from many a country. I mean, just look at recently the defunding of UNRWA uh, from country after country that Israel would never have expected to to have had its back, um, I, I think speaks to a, a recognition uh, by governments and by the people uh, who have elected these governments uh, of Israel's best attempts to be a moral army, a moral country, to be able to want to figure out a solution, to be able to want to accommodate, and to be doing its very best. Now, when it comes to the academy, I think that we have a combination of, yes, it's going in a certain direction. Yes, it is a growing phenomenon. Uh, Whether it is a majority, it's really hard to say. I think that most students are probably not politically active. Most students are not political science majors either. And, you know, if they're sitting in a medicine class or an engineering class, they're probably not even engaged in the issue um, in one way or the other. Uh, So I think there's probably hope there. I'm not sure that um, Western civilization is over. I think that that we we have, there's hope there. said that as well, I think it's also important to note when we talk about anti-Semitism and kind of blend it with anti-Zionism, the problem sometimes when we when we do take you know kind of that synonymous extreme position is that it, it comes back to bite us. So instead of allowing for a conversation that says that, well, what what issues uh, 
might you have with Zionism? Let's have an open conversation to be able to talk these things through. And instead, we automatically jump to, you know, anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism without trying to figure it out. Sometimes it um, only makes the problem fester and, and even grow. And part of our problem perhaps is that maybe we're not allowing a conversation that that does distinguish in such a way that we can point out anti-Semites and say, you have no basis for the arguments that you're making, therefore you are anti-Semitic. You're not, you're, you're single, singling out Israel, you're not looking at anybody else, so that might, may be a basis for it. I mean, I will tell you, my background is, like you mentioned, in church anti-Semitism, and one of the, I guess, first enlightening pieces that I realized when I was doing my research is that some of the mainline Protestant churches that were singling, singling out Israel for opprobrium, it wasn't baseless. Their contention was, and I said, well, why Israel? You know, why aren't you looking at Syria? Why aren't you looking where, where things are egregious? Well, they said, well, Israel was the land that Jesus walked. Israel is the land of the Bible that we revere. Why would we be looking at Syria? I said, aha, that's a, that's a good point. I understand that. And I think that we have to be willing to engage in a conversation as well to only then be able to say, well, now you've crossed the line. And now, despite the fact that you have this affinity for Israel, we have to piece it apart and say, you know, what exactly is bothering you? And if the, the project of Israel as a state for the Jews is what's bothering you, now we have a problem, right? So, so when we talk about, I think that anti-Semitism is rife in, in, in the mainline Protestant churches, in the universities, but, but we need to be able to remove the real anti-Semites from the ones who are dragging down people who are just not sure because they don't understand what Zionism is and they don't understand what the state of Israel is. And we're just allowing everybody to be pushed into the same group because we've, we just put it all in one group. But if we would weed them out, I think that we would see that those anti-Semites truly only the minority and the the others are, are redeemable. Just shifting a little bit, would an understanding of Torah, traditional Jewish values, change the prevailing situation? How so? And should Jews, and maybe particularly observant Jews, whatever that means, articulate Torah values to the general society? So I think that the answer is yes. Um, it wasn't always clear that the answer was yes. Uh, and I think that we're, we've, we're seeing that in incre ever-increasing ways of the last couple of decades, that those who adhere to, let's call it biblical views, uh, seem to be supportive of Israel. So whether that's in America, where it's obviously very strong, uh, but beyond America, um, to... Christian, let's say evangelical, but you know that were kind of boxes people in. But those with a biblical worldview um, seem to be supportive of the Jewish state. Now, people often jump to, well, that's because they believe in you know, some sort of end times, rapture, whatever it is. I, I'm not sure that that's the case. That's not been my experience. In my experience and in my research, 
So th there is an element of, well, look at the state of Israel and look at God's fulfillment of his promises that he promised here in this Bible. And, you know, if if he's fulfilled these promises in the Bible, then the Bible must be true. That's an element to get any end times issues, just the fact that the state of Israel exists. But even beyond that, there is a biblical way of thinking. And as I say, I think this was a Western Judeo-Christian way of thinking until recently, that understood that there are there is good and bad that there are that we're not all just different points of view and different ways of looking at things and different narratives that there there's a good and bad and part of that good and bad says that there's a state of Israel and the Jewish people were entitled to the state of Israel on whatever grounds obviously people who are bible believing know that the that God promised it and the Jews have a, a thousands year old history. But but even beyond that, that that it's even a question that oh maybe it's time to fold up the Jewish state. That that is not rational. That's not something that we would think about any other country. Um, it's not a standard that we would apply to any other country. Um, there's a good narrative and a bad narrative and and once people understand and have a kind of moral persuasion and moral, a strong sense of morality and what I believe in and who I am, what I stand for, I think that there comes a respect for a state of Israel and what Israel is doing. When one is of the view that, you know, kind of anything goes and, you know, um, who am I to judge, then you get to a place where you can justify, God forbid, the October 7th massacres, because, you know, everybody has a different point of view. So this morality and this clarity, and thank God, we, we've seen it in, in, in major Western countries, the US, the UK, this is not a party um, affiliation uh, disparity. No, no, uh, President Biden came out very strongly in support of Israel, right? So when we have this clarity of people who say, I, I, I'm Christian, I'm a religious person, then those Torah values, right, they're going to call it Judeo-Christian values, biblical values, we know that they are rooted in Torah, these are Torah values. And so when we have these Torah values, we have a clarity of purpose and a clarity of what's right and what's wrong without starting to, you know, beat around the bush as to, you know, what might be somebody else's view, even though it might not be my view, and it might be just as um, excusable. Now, in terms of our responsibility to foment such idea, ideas, Absolutely. I mean, we already have in the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu is told, you write this Torah in, in 70 languages, write on those stones, 70 languages, so that the world can hear the message. Avram Avinu is, is going throughout the region, teaching people about monotheism, teaching people about God, teaching people there's only one God, there's only one right way of, 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 of leading the moral life. It's not just a choice of, of paganism, of polytheism, one God, and he has a message whether it's Noahidism, but it's ethical morality, and there's a right and wrong. And that message that we, that Moshe had, I mean, clearly in the Torah, give it to the nations, somehow we've lost along the way. Somehow, because we weren't in a position that we could give over the message, you know, we, we lived in ghettos at, at best, and we weren't in a 
place to tell anybody what to do or what was wrong or what was right. And we kind of hoped that maybe by osmosis and a general exchange of ideas, if we were lucky, that we might be able to promote some of these biblical ideas. But but it's certainly it's it's this is this is what we're here for. We're meant to be a light into the nations and 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 to tell people what what is wrong and what is right, and to tell people that there is an a a morality that is not subject to the whims of society or the or the trends of the day. There is a right, there is a wrong, and here's the clarity. We know. Look at look at the Rambam who talks about. I mean, he says, you know, you there are all, always going to be um, minefields that we're walking into. He says, on the one hand, well, I think more people are uh, familiar with Rambam's position that says that Islam is preferable to Christianity in terms of its clear uh, um, commitment to monotheism, radical monotheism, only one God, whereas Christianity is not so clear. There's a trinity. What does that mean? That's on the one hand, and I think most people know that. Many people are less familiar with the tshuva, the response of the Rambam, where he says that when it comes to teaching Torah, you can teach Torah Christians, but you can't teach Torah to Muslims. Why? Because Christians believe in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, what they call the Old Testament. They believe that that's the word of God. Now, they've had some you know, misinterpretations of it, and we should probably set them right on that so that there's clarity, but... but but they believe that this is, they believe in the same Torah that we do. And so we should teach it to them, you know, let them know what the right meaning is, and we will bring them to the right path of, of clear Torah values. Islam, on the other hand, believes that the Torah is a corruption of whatever original word of God there was, and the correct version is the Quran. And so w- whatever we do to try and teach the right word, there's always going to be this discrepancy where you're right, we're wrong, and vice versa. So Rambam says there's no, there's no point spreading those, you know, we can talk general values, but but in terms of actual Torah teachings in on the inside, we have to be a little wary. Having said that, I think that there is a there is common ground to have amongst general, generally religious people who are who have been brought along on this journey of, of, of the Western canon, Western thought, and understand that, you know, that Muslim philosophy, the likes of Averroes and others, were part of that canon, part of that journey, and that what we've seen, you know, in recent decades, centuries, maybe, is, an, is a deviation from what could have been. And so I think that there is an, an element as well within the within Muslim society, within the Muslim community, that certainly we should be reaching out to, to be able to um, strengthen uh, the values that, that we all hold dear and, and values of cooperation. Because if we say that, you know, we just need to, you know, separate and shun them, and we'll always have the conflict. What we want to be able to do is find the right partners. And, you know, who would have ever thought 10 years ago that, you know, Saudi Arabia would even be on the table for normalization, for diplomacy, for working together. Nobody is 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 beyond the pale. Nobody is beyond hope. And the more that we have conversations and, and recognize that we don't all have to... Um, 
you know, think that the other person's also right, but we can respect. I'm right. I think you're wrong. And I understand if you think you're right, I'm wrong, as long as we can somehow find a way forward so that we are not involved in physical violence. That's that's a a lot of food to think about. And it sounds like we all have a lot of work to be done. And um, on on that note, again, uh, uh, Rabbi Dr. Um, Friedman, thank you so much um, for your, your, your thoughts, your inspiration. And um, it's, it's, it's good to hear um, some optimism during, during these days. Uh, Thank you so much again. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for having me. And please, God, may we hope and pray uh, for optimism that very soon uh, we should see uh, peace with all of our soldiers home, with the hostages home, and only blessings for the state of Israel, for the Jewish people, for the region, for the entire world, and peace in the world for the future. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you.